Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best of motor racing. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to part two of our very special Motorsport Hall of Fame podcasts. We are coming to you from uh, the middle of London on a freezing February day, as uh, those of you who joined us in part one will know. And I must, first of all, thank you all so much for sending in so many questions. We've had an absolute deluge of questions for both uh, Mr. Redmond and Mr. Andretti, and what I do like so much is that so many of these questions are addressed to Mr. Redman, what do you think? Mr. Andretti, what do you think? And this is, uh, you know, I think how we speak to the legends of our sport, quite frankly. Um, anyway, we, are, we do have Brian Redman with us now for the next 45 minutes, and I think he needs very little introduction, but he's a great storyteller. He tells me that he's uh, writing a book, uh, which is he describes as a work in progress, and uh, we will be asking him a bit more about the book a little bit later on. But Brian, can we can we start with um, last night, the Hall of Fame? Um, a good night for you. It was very good. I think for the first time, it was a, a really great affair in that a huge number of people were there and notable people in motorsport and many of whom I hadn't seen for you know 20 or 30 years or 40 years in some cases <laughs> or in uh, in Ron Dennis's case I hadn't seen him since 1968 and uh, has he changed you're kidding. <laughs> no I mean I, I was about to say to him you were a you know, a, I went. You, you were a m- 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 engineer. Because <laughs> I'm sure he didn't want to be called a mechanic. Don't use the Because he was Jochen Rintz mechanic, and we were at Zolder in a Formula Two race, and somehow I'd got on the second row in my Lola. In front of me on the front row were Jochen Rint and Chris Amon, and somebody on the third place. But I made. I just slightly jumped the start, and of course there was start, standing start. So now, my two front wheels are in, be- in between the spinning rear wheels of Eamon and uh, Rint, and unfortunately, Rint's left rear wheel hit the back of my right front wheel, and he flew about eight or nine feet in the air and was out of the race. So I was not the flavour of the month, I can tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I did. Uh, uh, Right, well, uh, very kind ladies, bringing us some coffee, if you're wondering what the uh, noises offer. Yeah, no, that's great, that's good stuff. And Ron Ron doesn't... It's interesting, Nigel, isn't it? Uh, Damien, I I should have said, of course, Nigel and Damien are here with us. Um, It's funny, he's passionate about motor racing, but he's not too keen on bringing up the past. He's quite Uh, a I've never understood it. Yeah, I, I really, I have never understood it. I would have thought, you know, you would have thought that he, he would be proud of what he'd achieved from, you know, from where he started and what he made out of it. But he isn't, and 
It's, it's actually quite difficult to get Ron to talk about the 60s, not even his part in it. It's quite difficult to get him to talk about yeah. those days. Yeah. Yeah. And I always think what a shame it is, because you know he, he must have a lot of good stories to tell. I was quite interested that you said his rear wheel hit your front wheel, but surely you were heading for him at the time, weren't you? Well, I got myself, because uh, I slightly jumped the start, I got in between Eamon and uh, Reddent, and there wasn't room. You know, so now both of their spinning rear wheels are behind my front wheels. You know, it was very, very close. Of course, I went in the air a bit as well. Uh, my steering was deranged, but I was able to carry on. <laughs> I mean, single. Looking back, um, would you say that you were you felt more comfortable in sports car racing than you did in single seaters or did it just work out that way in the end for you as it were no i liked single seaters better than sports cars i'm better known for sports car racing but i prefer the single seaters there's nothing like you know the accuracy and sophistication of a single seater built only for one purpose as against even the best of sports cars which are built because of regulations with bodywork and other things so the compromises are made in the in the car so i like single seaters better but i didn't drive a single seater at all until i was about 30 <laughs> which was a bit a bit on the late side but in 68, with the Lola, which wasn't really the weapon of choice at the Crystal Palace, I actually got it on pole position ahead of Jochen Rint and everybody, all the stars, and finished second in the race mm. to Rint. Oh, in the Formula 5000 days, of course, they were single-seaters and were really great, really great car. I, I, an aspect of your career, Brian, that always fascinated me was that you, I mean, I remember you, you telling me when, when you could have gone to Ferrari... Um, I mean, mm. you know, in, in Formula One, sixty-eight. Yeah, and you, but I mean, but you had that that single uh, Formula Two driver, the Nurburgring. Yes, with the, with the the saga of the goggles. Mm -hmm. But you also um, said to me that you you were convinced had, had you gone to Ferrari, had you signed for Ferrari, you know, you would not have survived. Yes, yes, and that's the way I felt at the yeah. time because of the way that I drove in that Nürburgring race. And, of course, this was the south circuit, yeah. the Sudschleife, not the big north one, but still it was about five miles around. Mm. And it was similar, of course, of up and down in the Eiffel Mountains. But after the incident with the goggles, and when I started again with wearing Jackie Ix's sun goggles, which were green, you couldn't see very well in the, in the dark parts but under the trees. But I drove like an absolute raving lunatic. <laughs> I did. I mean, I hadn't won thought about strategy or anything i was an animal at the wheel <laughs> <laughs> well, why, yeah. why why because this was just such a big chance and you no it uh, wasn't really i wasn't looking at it like that it was just the general combination of the pressure that had been brought to bear by ferrari by mauro fagheri basically where in practice I'd gone as fast as I could, and I came in about 15 minutes from the end, and he said, Brian, why have you stopped? And I said, I've gone as fast as I can. He said, Brian, you are in 10th place. Go out and try harder. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and drove, you know, pretty hard, very hard, for another 15 minutes, and I went one 
tenth of a second faster than I'd gone before at considerably more risk, you know. And so in the race, when after the goggles, I think the combination of everything had been Ferrari. And of course, uh, Signa Ferrari had been at the test that I'd done in uh, Modena and so on and so forth. And uh, when I got back to the hotel, the sport hotel and sat on the bed, I had my head in my hands. I was almost in tears. I sat staring at the floor for 20 minutes. I didn't move. I just sat there. And I just thought, I'm going to be killed. <laughs> so, mm. <laughs> but in fact, I mean, just the other thing is, when Mara said you were tenth, you weren't tenth at all, were you? No. That was the thing. Where, where I can't remember where you were, but you were much, much, much higher than that. And he was just Mara being Mara. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was going to say, how, how hard was it to, to let go of Formula One when you realised, you know, it wasn't going to. Oh, it wasn't hard at all. I never liked it. Right. <laughs> so, um, I, my whole Formula One career was a saga of misery from one end to the other. The mistakes that I made, stupid mistakes, you know, like, uh, let's say, well, let me give you three good examples. In 1972 with uh, McLaren. So I'd never driven McLaren when I went to Monaco and uh, I qualified just behind Denny. And it rained for the race. Mm. And I followed Denny because he was the team leader. Well, we both went down the chicane. We missed the chicane. So now we stopped and wait whilst all the cars come past. Then we get going again. Now I'm mad, you know. And so I get past Denny and had a very good race, but not a race where I was driving with a lot of heart, you know, and because it's too slippery and wet. I think we lapped Denny about three times. But I had a puncture as well, but finished fifth. So that was all right. But then uh, the Nürburgring, the German Grand Prix, you go around the short loop behind the pits to warm the tyres up. Now, I knew the Nürburgring very well. I'd run there just shortly before in the Porsche 908 for Porsche in the 1,000 kilometres. So I loved the Nürburgring. And uh, and I thought I'm going to do really well here, you know. Well, right. I come round on my go lap round the north curve, mm. and I stamped on it in you know second gear. Immediately went sideways. The tyres weren't hot, and hit the barrier fairly hard. Mm. So uh, I, I started the race. I'd lost all my fight and spirit, and I just drove round, you know, and finished fifth, I think. Mm. And then the French Grand Prix. Uh, there was an old hotel that we were staying in and it had a very, very ancient lift where you could see everybody in it as it went up and down. Well, I was on the top floor and we were going out to dinner and it so happened that uh, three or four of the mechanics got into the lift and one of them said, bet you can't beat us down you know, on the stairs. So challenge is a challenge. I'll go hurtling down the stairs and I can see the lift, you know, and, it's, <laughs> and I got about five steps from the bottom and I tripped up. And I went over tea and a tremendous crash on the floor wrecked my right angle. I couldn't get my boot on. I had to, so I had to slit the boot with a razor to get, to get it to fit. And it was my right foot. Jeez. So again, I did another miserable race. You know, yeah. just drove round and finished yeah. seventh or something. But you, you never felt sort of uh, a, a pang of regret or feeling that, you know, what, what might have been given you know, your ability... And you never quite achieved the results you could have done. Did well, that never I, bugged you particularly? Or? Yes, I, I mean, I regret a lot of things. And of course, it so happened that my career kept being interrupted by nasty accidents. You mm. know, sort of time after time, everything's going well. In 68, I mean, I was on top of the world. I had the best long distance drive in the world mm. um, with John Wire and Jackie Hicks in the Gulf GT40. Uh, I had a Formula One ride with Cooper. 
But after after winning at the Crystal, finishing second at Crystal Palace and putting it on pole at Spa, um, I was talking to Colin Chapman about joining Lotus, and also John Surtees had talked to me about joining Honda. So, mm-hmm. and I'd bought a new house on the strength of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And a daughter had been born whilst I was at Daytona in February, and everything was fantastic. And then, of course, the suspension broke mm. on the on the on the miserable Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's remarkable to me, actually, bearing in mind how many times you had a pretty nasty accident. There must have been several moments when you thought, "Hang on, you know, maybe I could be something else, like an MP or." Well, the trouble was, I knew I, knew I couldn't be anything else. <laughs> so it's all I could do. Uh, but the one thing I think that I learned in the three bad accidents, the first one at Spa, I wasn't knocked out, but my right arm was badly broken between the car and the barrier as it rolled over. And so I felt all that, um, but I wasn't knocked out. Uh, the next one in 1971 on the Targa Florio when the steering broke on the mm. Porsche 9083 and it hit a concrete post in the fuel tank and exploded and I was extremely lucky to get out but when I got out I was on fire from head to foot and so I could hear somebody screaming and I think it was probably me but I don't really know <laughs> mm. and uh, of course I was blinded um, from the fire as well for a time, and well, your so goggles were actually sort of welded into your face, weren't they? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You, you might know more about no, it. No, no, no. I, I can't. <laughs> who, who was well? Who, who was? Who might have been involved in the your rescue that that day? Well, it was a long time before you saw you saw a doctor, wasn't it? It was um, the one problem was that the the helicopter. Um, couldn't get to me, you know, so I was there 45 minutes right. on the hillside yeah. with some Sicilian yeah. spectators were fanning me with magazines, you know, to try and cool me down. Mm. But then the hospital I went to, nobody knew where I was, and it wasn't until 11 at night, that was some 12 hours later, uh, by which I couldn't see, and my hands were bound, you know, with bandage, I was bandaged all over, all my head, everything. Uh, Richard Atwood and Pedro Rodriguez came to find me, right. mm. and they took me back to the Porsche Hotel. Right. In Chefalu, and a doctor that was with Porsche gave me, you know, painkilling stuff, and that was that. So, but the next one in '77, of course, when the car took off at Sandrevit and came down upside down, I don't remember anything about that. Yeah. So, what I'm saying after all that mm-hmm. is that having been through these three accidents, two of which I was totally conscious, and the other I wasn't conscious, I know now that if something like that happens, that you don't feel anything at the time. Mm-hmm. So. Why not carry on? If you have another one, mm. you don't feel it. And the Sanjavi one, your 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 death was reported in the paper, wasn't it? Yes, when my wife arrived. Well, uh, the uh, it was a new car. It was Can-Am, and yeah. it was really a Formula Five Thousand car with yeah. bodywork. Yeah. Mm. And that was done by the SCCA as a marketing exercise because Can-Am had been a famous name in American racing, and in the late sixties and the very early seventies, the crowds had been very good for Can-Am. Mm. Now, with Formula Five Thousand took over, and completely took over by nineteen seventy-five, the crowds were nothing like they'd been. That was why they put the bodywork on the car right. and called it Can-Am. It was a pure marketing marketing thing. Yeah. So when I went to Sandrovit for the first practice session on Friday morning, of course the car had been tested in Midland, Texas, mm-hmm. at Rattlesnake Raceway by Franz Weiss, and I asked him about it. He was a great test driver, mm-hmm. as well as the engine builder, as well mm-hmm. as a great all-round you know, me- mechanic, <coughs> superb. 
he said the car's pretty good so I was actually three or four seconds a lap faster than than everybody you know early on in the practice session and I came in and Jim Hall said how is it I said it's good he said what do you want well I didn't really want anything mm. and I said oh, I don't know lower the rear wing by a quarter of an inch <laughs> so down comes the rear wing and on the next lap at about 170 it took off you know went straight in the air about 40 feet and came down upside down mm. and it went up the road upside down the roll bar broke and I went down on the road and wore a hole through my helmet here however as it rolled off the road just before it stopped it landed on its wheels mm. and my heart stopped but the track doctor was a heart specialist and he was there very quickly got a heart guy and the ambulance blew a tyre on the way to hospital <laughs> going about 80 and when my wife arrived the next morning from England there was the Montreal front page showing the ambulance, the two guys working away on the wheel. I'm lying in the back, not looking too good. And the headline was, Red Manet more, Red Manet's dead. So, so that was interesting. Blimey, I, I knew we were lucky to have you on our podcast for 45 minutes. Now I know just how lucky we are. This is incredible. Well, all of these things, you know, were considerable setback. Uh, first of all in 68 with Cooper at at that point as I mentioned I had a really my career was looking really good and suddenly it was effectively over you know so not over but not looking good and uh, of course both bones in my right forearm had come out it was a compound fracture and crushed and the doctor at the University of Liège teaching hospital Professor Orban had been a World War II uh, Winston Churchill aide and you know when he got me on the table he you know Monsieur Edman it may not be possible to save the arm you know and I laughed I said thank you Professor he said said, why why are you laughing I said because I'm here (laughs) anyway in England in Burnley Lancashire in um, October they took two x-rays of my forearm. They said, well, it's okay, it's healed. So I talked to Derek Bennett of Chevron Cars, tested a B8 at Aintree, mm-hmm. and we went to South Africa, and we did the nine, oh, uh, nine hours at Kailami, mm-hmm. uh, three hours single-handed at uh, Cape Town, three hours at Bulawayo, and three hours in Lorenzo Marks. Mm-hmm. And then on the way back to the next race at Goldfields, we went past Johannesburg, and I called Alex Blicknell, the race organizer, and I said, do you know a good bone man? Because it was hurting a bit, you know. He said, yes, man, he said, I know the Christian Barnard of the bone world. (laughs) (laughs) So I go to see David Rue on a Friday afternoon. He takes 20 x-rays and he sits me down. He says, Brian, man, he said, I've got two bits of bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you don't have any union of either bone. I said, oh, that's good. What's the next bit? He said, I'm going on vacation tomorrow. <laughs> anyway, he stayed, and I said, I've just signed a contract with Porsche for 1969, and I said, uh, I have to be at Daytona in six weeks' time. And he said, I'll try an experiment that may work and it may not. And he opened my arm up about, about the full length of the original scar, about eight or nine inches, and cleaned off the broken ends that weren't healing, took bone out of my hip and glued it in position, wow. didn't put it back in plaster, left it, he said, don't use it till you have to, so I got to Daytona with it in a sling, mm-hmm. took the sling off mm-hmm. and never said anything to anybody, I drove the nine out with one hand, you know, on the banking, with my knee, Jesus. my elbow on my knee and holding, uh, with my right hand just resting on the wheel, and there were five factory team cars, and I thought, I can't go 24 hours Anyway, about eight in the evening, the first of the factory cars came in the pits with the engine misfiring. The engineers examined it and they said, 
We are finished. They will all break. <laughs> <laughs> By 11 o'clock, we were out. <laughs> I tell you what, I want to put a deposit down on your book now. <laughs> this is going to be the book of it, the... It, Brian, it, it is a, sort of quite a long work in progress, this book. It is, yes. <laughs> quite a while since <laughs> we first talked about it. Probably what, two years. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what, what's, what is it? Well, it, it's... Shortage it's, of time? Or, yes, or, or. And, and, and shortage of of the necessary drive to get it done. Hmm. I keep reading it and making alterations and then I read it again and I think well, I should put this in and take this out because Michael Kaiser, who you may recall made a great film, yeah. The Speed Merchants, yeah. Yeah. he's doing the bulk of the yeah. writing. We've got 1,800 photographs you know, to choose from hmm. of all types and so um, it will eventually come out this year, I hope. Yeah. Have you got um, a title for it? Yep. Uh, well, we did have it. Was it, originally it was Brian Redman, My Racing Life. But mm -hmm. I said to Michael, "That's a bit boring, isn't it?" <laughs> so he then said, "I said, well, how about using what Fangio said to me at the British Grand Prix in 1955 when I went, I said, Mr. Fangio, how do you go so fast?" <laughs> he said, more throttle, less break. <laughs> so it's going to be called More Throttle, Less oh, Break. Excellent. Right. I think that's yeah, a great yeah, title, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, a great good. title, guys. Yeah, yeah. The editor's yeah. nodding furiously. Absolutely. I think motorsport is going to get right behind this book. Um, <coughs> I, I, uh, I'm under instruction here from the editor, and you'll appreciate from my point of view just how important that is, uh, to explore some of the questions that uh, have been sent in, and quite right too, because um, you out there, good morning, you've taken... A lot of trouble to write to us, great many of you. So, Andrew Lynch, uh, Brian, Andrew asked quite simply, really, why you think you won more Formula 5,000 races than Mario Andretti? And I, I, wa <laughs> I was I waiting for somebody to ask that. I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you this, now that Mario is safely doing, going around London seeing, this, seeing the sights. Well... I mean, when Mario came in and the Bells Pardelli team, it was 1974, and this was because the Sports Car Club of America, the original organisers of the 5000 series, uh, had joined with USAC, the Roundy Round boys who did Indianapolis and the various other Roundy Round tracks with no road racing. So now we have an influx of USAC drivers, which included Mario Andretti and Alan Sir and Johnny Rutherford and probably four or five other USAC drivers. Bobby, Bobby Unser did some races as well. So it changed the complexion of 5,000 from being a comparatively club kind of formula into a really tough, you know, a really tough series. And Andretti came in, uh, first of all, their team, Velspar, now they took my chief mechanic, Jim Chapman, which I wasn't very happy about, I can tell you. <laughs> and uh, they, they went about it. They intended winning the championship. And they were the only team with Firestone tyres. So we yeah. felt they had an advantage, especially in qualifying, mm -hmm. because we everybody used Goodyear's and we didn't have any special <coughs> Goodyear's. Mm -hmm. And Mario, of course, was a superb uh, road racing driver. And uh, and the reason that we won the championships and that he didn't in '74 and '75 were because uh, we each won the same number of races, but uh, the ones Mario didn't win, he generally didn't finish. Mm. Whereas the ones I didn't win, I finished. And so that's how I got more points. So it wasn't very glamorous. But we had a fantastic team, you know, with Jim Hall. 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com All chaparral cars. Mm. France Weiss, just superb. Uh, Troy Rogers, the fabricator, and Davy Evans, who was murdered last uh, year yeah, in Indianapolis. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And uh, Tony Connor, who did the gearbox. So this is a total team with four people, as usual, with Francois building the engines and doing the car setup. But I, I would say that in spite of the professional uh, Vels Parnelli team, that we actually had a better team. Mm. And you all probably know the name of Gordon Kirby, the writer, and he's writing a book now on, uh, on Newman Hass. And he sent me a section from it Oh, several months ago, which referred to the Formula 5000 days. And uh, Jim Hall and Francois uh, put in that book, and what they said was very, uh, very nice. And, and they both said, even Jim Hall, with all his great success, said that was the greatest series hmm. that he'd taken part in, which yeah. I couldn't believe, you know, with yeah. what he'd yeah. done with, uh, with his Sports chaperone. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm going to take one more reader's question. Um, it comes from Chris Hall. Uh, and uh, Chris wants to know, Brian. Um, he says that we have, we are in an era of sterile circuits. I think many of us would agree with that. <laughs> and um, he, he's interested yeah. in which circuit you you found the most challenging. And and even more, even more, he wants to know which corner. Which I think is quite a nice question. <laughs> Very interesting. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> um, well, yes, I mean, in compared uh, to the old days, the circuits today are extremely sterile. And not only that, the cars themselves are amazingly strong in accidents if they hit anything. But anyway, um, I thought that, and uh, Jackie Stewart disagrees, he thinks the Nürburgring was the most difficult circuit. But I didn't. I thought Spa-Francorchamps was the most difficult uh, it was because of the speed, and you could learn. I knew the, the Nürburgring perfectly. I knew every inch, and it was definitely a big challenge. Uh, but it's possible that in a Formula One car, that um, at Spa, a Formula One car only went about 170 miles an hour, whereas a Porsche 917 going into the Master Kink was doing 215. Cool. And in 1970, the last year that both sports cars and Formula One ran at Spa in their day, uh, the Formula One cars were 10 seconds a lap slower yeah, in the 1970s. Yeah. And so, to me, Spa, Francorchamps, every time I went there, I thought, I'm dead, this is it. 
I lay awake all night, perspiration running down my head. And because I'd had a religious upbringing, <laughs> going through my mind all the time, repeating and repeating, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. And that's what it was like every time. And yet it was a lucky circuit for but me. But yeah, and you were so good there. That's the other thing. I mean, you yeah. know, you, well, you were. Won, won five times there. Yeah, yeah. And, but I mean, uh, you were quicker than Pedro also. Yes, you? apparently. Yes, according to John Horseman's book. <laughs> yes, yes, I ra- yes. I rang John after I'd read the toss yeah. fast, faster than Pedro and uh, Seppi. I said, John, why on earth didn't you tell me? He said, Brian, you'd have wanted more money. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, uh, out of interest, it's a good question. Uh, uh, we're going for Spa and the Master Kink, are we? In answer, yes. Probably, I mean, at Spa. Probably the Master King because it was so important to your lap times. You know, it was such a quick corner. It wasn't flat and you couldn't see through it. And that's uh, downhill approach, that's the other It was thing. a downhill it's, approach, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so of the other fast corners was well, Stavolo, which came after the Master King, was extremely quick in top gear, but a long corner. The next left hander was very fast. The next right hander had a had a house as the apex. You know, that was the apex, the corner of the house. Well in fact the kink. I mean, the the, the the second apex of the king was a house, wasn't yes, it? Yeah. Yes, yes. The second apex Jenks, in, Jenks in the master king was a farmhouse. Jenks used yeah. to go in that well, house it was a farmyard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So probably the master king <coughs> was so important to your lap times. And, of course, this one of the secrets at Spa uh, was in traffic, was timing when you passed a slower car in order to calculate whether that car, whether you could pass it before the corner, and if you couldn't, how much when you had to lift a little bit mm. so as not to lose too much uh, speed, and then calculate, you know, flat, now where through the corner, and, the, and you pass the car as you come out. So. Yeah. You've made reference to the uh, Porsche 917, and I was hoping that Nigel might explore with you some of your uh, experiences with Porsche. Um, per, 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 perhaps we should um, well uh, Nigel guide me but I think maybe we should begin with the 908 um, and work ourselves up a bit yeah I mean I confess uh, Brian I think of 908 so I still I, I, the first thing always comes into my head is your, your when you when you first saw the 9083 yes maybe um, you should tell us about that <laughs> ah, well when I <laughs> I mean, pull and pull the sheet off. Yeah. Yes, yes. So uh, it was at uh, Weissach in the, the winter of 1969. We'd gone for a party, uh, Porsche, and uh, there was also a big celebration of German sporting prowess somewhere. I don't know whether that was Munich or where it was, but it was somewhere. Anyway, we were in uh, Stuttgart, and uh, and we go into the workshop, and the engineer said, "You know, Herr Edmund, you would like to see the new 9083." Yes, there we go into a corner and takes off the dust sheet, and it's sitting there without the front bodywork on. And I, I got in it, and then you know I saw that my feet were actually slightly in front of the front wheels, and in front of the—I'm not talking about the centre line of the front wheels. I'm talking the front of the tyre, <laughs> and in front of that was an oil cooler about um, ten inches by six, and that was it. So I got out, and the engineers looked a bit sheepish. You know, they said. Uh, Edmund, what do you think of the new 9083? I said, hmm, 
I said, well, I think it's a very good car for Douglas Bader. <laughs> so I then had to explain who Douglas Bader was. But for some reason, they didn't laugh. <laughs> this wasn't the joke of the day for them, I imagine, was it? No, not really. Um, well, I, I don't know, if, forgive me if this needs a brief explanation for any of you listening, but Douglas Bader was a, a great uh, wartime British fighter pilot who lost both his legs. Just in yes. case, uh, yes. just before in case, the war. Yeah, yes. before the war, yes. just yeah. in case, uh, the Bada reference. Mm. Um, anyway, Nigel, well, what <laughs> well I mean, the the nine one seven. I mean, I remember you telling me that you know the, the conversations you used to have with Sifford yes. about, about who should who should test and who should. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, they rang me one day. We'd heard about it. Of course, we knew it had been built, and we we knew about it, and we heard it had, uh, that it was difficult. And uh, when they called me from Vysop one day, I was in Cone in Lancashire looking out over, over the moors. Mm-hmm. The phone rang. Edman, you will come and test a new 917. Well, I, you know, at that time, there were ten drivers in the team. Six Germans, three English, Vic Elford, mm-hmm. Richard Atwood, myself, mm-hmm. and Joe Sifford. Mm-hmm. So I thought, why do they want me when they've got six German heroes <laughs> waiting to die for the fatherland, you know, <laughs> living within about an hour? <laughs> So I said, I'll call you back. I have some arrangements to make. Please be sure to call Herod. And I said, I will. I rang Sifford. Seppi, yes, Brian. I said, have you tested the new 917 yet? There was a long silence. He says, no, no, Brian. He said, we let the others find out what breaks first. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, uh, Kurt Ahrens tested the car Mm -hmm. at Wolfsburg, the Volkswagen test track, and it was wet. And he aquaplaned off the track, went under the barrier... It stuck Jesus. under the barrier. It broke in half across the cockpit, Jesus. and he went down the track, strapped in the back half, leaving his shoes in the front. Is that right? Yes. Christ. Yes. Really. And of course, the first private owner to buy one, John Wolfe. Oh yeah. 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 Well, Digby Markland, who I knew well, you know, mm. he's from the north mm. of England, mm. and uh, he spun in a straight line in practice, going over the Mulsan hump, mm. and he didn't hit anything. He drove mm. it back to the pits. He got out. He went up to John Wolfe. He said, "Thank you very much, John." He said. Oh, I have now retired from motor racing. <laughs> <laughs> and he never raced again. No. no. But, uh, we all said, Vic Elford and Richard Atwood and I all said to John, John, let Herbert Lingy start the race. You know, he was a factory test mm. driver. Mm. No, no, it's my car. I was starting and so mm. killed on the first lap at the White mm. House corner. Mm. What, what was it about the car? I mean, you know, it's a real moment in motor racing history, isn't it, the Porsche 9? Well, I, I think, I mean, it was, it was just extraordinarily unstable, wasn't it, to start it, with? And it, was on, and it was on very, very narrow, it, it was an, on yes. nine-inch rims as well, that yes. was the other thing it was on very with. narrow rims, yeah, it had yeah. this long, swoopy body, yeah. it was extremely unstable. I actually ran in the uh, Le Mans test in uh, 69 <clears> with it, and it was terrible. I mean, it went from one side of the road to the other, down <laughs> the Marlson Strait. Well, in fact, I remember in the early laps of the race, the, the, the helicopter, Stommelen was leading, mm-hmm. as Gardner said, you know, with the fatherland on his back. and you know. Yes, absolutely. But yeah. the, the, I remember the helicopter shots of him going down Mulsanne, and it was just going from, from yeah, one side just to going from one side And he was just other. correcting yeah. it and correcting it yeah. and correcting it. Mm-hmm. And I later on asked him about it, and he just said, you just had to hope and pray that the kink... When you got to the kink, you were on the left ...fitted into where the, the car yeah. happened to be at that, you know. Yes, yes. So it was pretty awful, and uh, when I raced it for the first time, we had a choice, you know, of of one at Spa, 
in uh, May, mm. and then at Le Mans, but Sifford and I for Le Mans, we also had a special open long tail 908 mm -hmm. Spider, mm. and we chose that because we thought it would be more reliable. Mm. And in fact, we were leading the race at about eight in the evening when the gearbox failed because it had never been tested with that long bodywork, mm. and mm. it overheated. And so my first actual race in a 917 was the Ostreichering oh. uh, in uh, mm. 1969, and I'd never been to the Ostreichering, and I'd never raced the 917, and I got a total of three laps in practice. <laughs> <Gee>. <laughs> <laughs> I went up to Rico Steinem and the team manager said, thank you very much, Rico, I'm going home. He said, Brian, what do you mean? I said, I can't race this 97, diabolical 917 on this fast and fairly dangerous mm. track with no practice. Mm. He said, well, take your time. I said, ha, <laughs> I said, I can't take my time. You know, yeah, I have to go for mm. And he said, oh, okay, okay, we'll put irons with Suffolk mm. and you can drive with Dickie Atwood in, in uh, David Piper's <coughs> car. Yeah. Right. So that's what happened. No, because I stayed on, uh, didn't stay on, but about a month and a half later, Wire had made his arrangements with Porsche that they were going to be the official Porsche team for 1970, mm. and there was an official Porsche test at the Ostreichering, where we'd just been. And there, for Porsche, was Kurt Ahrens, and for John Wire, was me. And uh, Porsche mechanics were there, and the Porsche truck was there, and also the wire, uh, not John Wire himself, but David York and John Horseman, the engineer, and uh, Marmo Kugi, the chief chief mechanic, and mm -hmm. one other mechanic, mm -hmm. Richie Bray, I think. And we took the car out, and both Kurt and I, uh, and it was terrible, just as it had been five or six weeks before in the race. And so we're trying this and trying that, one lap at a time, in, 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 out. No changes, really. And uh, John Horseman, he said, look at all those bugs on the front of the 917. It was covered in gnats. And then there weren't any at all on the rest of the bodywork to the very tip of the tail where there was about half an inch of gnats. He said the air, you know, isn't touching the bodywork. So he, from Porsche, he got aluminium and plywood and duct tape and he covered the valley in the, and they worked on it that night and the next morning I went out in it first of all and where I'd been doing one lap at a time I did ten laps and I came in I said now we have a race car mm. and it was four seconds faster Jesus. Jesus. and by the end of the day it was five <coughs> seconds faster <laughs> well, that's remarkable isn't it, it? Yeah, it I think you know the Porsche engineers knew about it they mm. knew they knew what the problem was mm. the trouble was that Herr Piet was so insistent on straight line speed mm. that he wouldn't let them do anything mm. unless if, he wouldn't let them do anything which you know increased the coefficient of drag mm. and that mm. was why but when when, it, when the lap time showed it and even at Le Mans in 1970 when Porsche came with some new special long tail much faster 20 miles an hour faster down the straight mm -hmm. John had turned that down and in fact if you watched the tape from the 1970 race you see that although yes you could see the long tail leaping ahead down the Mulsanne but by the end of the lap they're back again yeah, together you true. know so yeah. the old story yeah. Well, yeah. did you ever uh, you know on a more positive note maybe did you ever jump into a racing car across all those years and you just felt straight away this is fantastic did that a um, many times in uh, in Chevron's, uh, for the first time, driving them for the first time, I knew it, straight away at Alton Park, you know, that they were really good right away. The B19, the B16, B16 actually, when we tested it, it was only a week before the Nürburgring 500 kilometers, a long way. 
and at Alton Park it was fairly good. And we got to the Nürburgring, it was terrible, diabolical. And there were three factory R baths there. And on Friday, they were 20 seconds a lap faster than we were. And Saturday, and I've got Derek Bennett there and Paul Owens, you know, the right mm-hmm. yes, man, yeah. working away, and we did this and we did that. We put narrower front wheels on to try and stop it darting about so much. Mm-hmm. And we put a little spoiler on the back and little winglets on the front. Mm-hmm. And finally, on the last lap on Saturday, we put it on pole position. And the three Bath guys were all running for the cars, but it was too late. <laughs> and so that car was uh, we had a great a great race and led from start to finish in considerable heat at one point i started to f- to go to sleep almost and i hit the back of a sprite <laughs> going down the fox run which, which woke me up and probably woke him, him up as you well were, you were literally <laughs> dozing yeah i was do- I was, yeah. I was getting drowsy yeah. Brian, you, you, you were always you know, linked with chevrolet as much as you were with porsche i mean can you tell us a little bit about Derek Bennett, what he was like? Cause he's a well, he was an character. amazing, intuitive engineer. You know, He was like Eric Broadley and uh, Colin Chapman. Yeah. They'd both come along in similar ways, building club cars and you know, having success with them. But he, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. And the, and the crew, Paul Owens, were all really fantastic. You know, northern working lads working in a mill, an old <laughs> mill <laughs> in Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> they were all fantastic and uh, some of the best and most productive testing that I ever did was with Chevron because we'd go to the track with a new car and I'd drive it, I'd say well it's doing this and this and Derek would drive it, he was a very good driver mm. Derek would say yes, yes and I think it's <laughs> that and they'd disappear back to Bolton that mm. night work all night <laughs> and we'd be back at 8 o'clock the next morning with it changed and we'd do that for 4 days and at the end of four days, we'd, we'd have a great race car. <laughs> so do you think if he'd been a more uh, ebullient character, a bit more of a Chapman, you know, Chevron could have been a, a, a bigger force? Possibly. And, he yeah. was very quiet. But of course, Eric Broadley was very quiet as well, mm, wasn't yeah. he? He was like a, like a professor. Mm, yeah. But uh, Derek Bennett, I mean, the, the race at Spa in 1970, if Lola won or Chevron won, <laughs> either one would win the championship by one point. Mm. And it was a fantastic race, you know, oh, against Joe Bonnier, where we never separated by more than the uh, car's length. Jeff <laughs> Hutchinson always said that was that was the best race of any kind he ever saw. Really? Yeah. yeah well, when, yeah. I, when I mention it, when people ask me and I say, well, it was a great race, they, they think you're going to say Spa in the 917 mm-hmm. or the Targa mm-hmm. Flamingo, you know, mm-hmm. or something. Yes, but it's yes. like, yeah. uh, for a race where we were flat out from start to finish and to take the lead on the last corner mm-hmm. of the last lap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I, I can see the editor is thinking that Chevron is a great story. Perhaps we'll see a Chevron story in our magazine. Yeah, we've done them before, I'm sure we'll do them I'm again. sure we've done them before, but it is a great story, isn't it, the Chevron? Yes, I felt bad, you know, in 1972 because I instigated the Chevron Formula 5000 car. See, when I'd retired to mm. South Africa in 1970 and come back after four months, I didn't have a drive. Mm. And uh, Sid Taylor had a McLaren M18 5000, and I drove that, and it was pretty awful. You know, this was a mm. Trojan-built mm. car. Mm. Yeah, sure. And the trouble was that Frank Gardner had come up with this Formula 2-based yeah. 5000. Yeah. And the uh, McLaren, <coughs> you know, just wasn't up to it. And so at the end of 72, I said to Derek Bennett, can you build a 5000 car? And he said, yes. I said, how long and how much? He said, 10 weeks and whatever it costs me. Mm. And I paid him £3,000 for it. 
10 weeks later mm-hmm. and Sid Taylor bought the engine gearbox mm-hmm. and we ran it at Oulton Park for the first time and it broke the record the first, mm-hmm. first day mm-hmm. and so at the end of the season at Riverside the last race of the American season uh, well first to go back a little bit before this Sid Taylor said we, said we need to take it to Watkins Glen in July why? $20,000 first prize <laughs> like what <laughs> <laughs> so we shipped the Chevron off to New York on an open trailer with no spares we bought a $500 station wagon in New York towed it to Watkins Glen Ron Bennett Sid's great mechanic was oh, there yeah, yeah. and we were leading there were aggregate races there were two races and it was on aggregate we were leading by 45 seconds with five laps to go and twenty thousand dollars and the battery went flat (laughs) (laughs) Sid fell on the floor laughing (laughs) (laughs) he's lying on the floor screaming shouting the effing battery went flat (laughs) (laughs) so the last race of the year at Riverside California um, I didn't know but Carl Hass and Jim Hall were there looking for a driver you know for 73 Mm -hmm. So I'd, I had a fairly good race. It was funny because uh, Sam Posey was leading in his 30s, and I was second, and it was getting towards the end of the race. It was time to, you know, get moving. And suddenly, coming into the very fast, probably coming in at about 170 miles an hour into turn nine, the back of Sam's car came towards me, and I swerved, you know, to miss him because I was very close behind. And I won. Well, what had happened was a yellow flag had gone up on turn nine, for some incident I'd never seen it so yes of course Sam's uh, car owner put a protest in Mm -hmm. and uh, there was a steward's inquiry and at the end of it the chief steward came to me in a strong Lancashire accent (laughs) he introduced himself he said I'm from Accrington (laughs) Accrington that's 10 miles from Burnley so he said yes now then, Brian Laddie said, there's one Lancashire lad to another. Can you honestly say to me, didst thou see yellow flag or not? I said, no, I didn't. Right, Laddie said, you're the winner. <laughs> <laughs> How the hell had he finished up as a, as a chief steward at a, a no 5,000 race at Riverside? I don't know, That's amazing. That's he did, though, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it was due to that race that I got the drive in. So when... <coughs> Carl Hatch said, would you like to drive for us for next year? I felt very bad about Chevron. You know, and I said to Derek, I talked to Derek, and I said, Derek, this is a really great opportunity for me, I said, because I know that this is going to be a great, you know, effort. And I said, I'm, I'm really sorry, I'm, I'm going. So. Well, yeah. I'm very sorry, too, because uh, our time is up, and I could, I don't, we could all sit here all day. Well, I could. I, I haven't had so much fun in front of a microphone for years <laughs> Brian Redman fantastic, thank you so so much um, it's just not the sort of show you're going to get with modern racing people is it, it's just uh, so entertaining and uh, the stories are, are wonderful well, but, well, uh, one yeah. last one you know, in my, at my sort of height of my driving um, well, abilities in the mid-70s, late 70s, before the accident in Canada. I really thought, you know, that I'd earn enough money in racing uh, to retire or be killed, you know, in the attempt. And unfortunately, neither of them happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I, think, 
I think I can say, uh, speak for the whole world when I say, get that book out. Get that book out. Absolutely. Because it's going to be the best book we've seen for years and years. But uh, thank you very much, Brian. And uh, thanks from all of us. Nigel Roebuck, Damien Smith, and thanks to Alan Hyde, who's come uh, all the way into London today to set all this up for us. And to Ed Foster, who's not here today, who's uh, done lots of the planning. So thank you all very much. And we'll see you... Uh, where am I now? We'll see you in, in March for the next motorsport podcast, and I guess it's all downhill from here, really, isn't it? We're going to have to uh, dream up some good plans for the next one. Thanks, everybody, and uh, see you again. Bye. Motorsport Magazine, the audio podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.